not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Uh, Let's make sure that our Bible is open to Matthew 4, because we're going to be looking at the temptations of of Jesus tonight. And as we get ready to to do that, let's ask God to bless us. Uh, Father, we're grateful for every opportunity that that you give us upon this planet to come together and to encourage each other and 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 to study together and to pray for each other to you in the name of Jesus and and to be edified father and 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 to be lifted up in in such a way in our faith that we are ready to face the week in front of us with hearts full of your presence and a mind father full of of your will that comes from your word Father, continually bless us in this way by giving us eyes to see and ears to hear in such a way that we just are so transformed by, by your word, this powerful word that comes to us. And Father, as we think about the temptations of Jesus tonight, something that we all face, we, we, we do pray to, to, to find ourselves being strengthened in your word and our resolve to be pleasing to you. And all of this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, a lot of years ago, I was a really tiny individual. I, was, uh, I wrestled uh, uh, through my high school career uh, at 138 pounds, which meant that uh, my playing weight in football was about 150 to 155 pounds, that I was needing to lose about 20 pounds or so in, in a matter of weeks in order to make weight for the for the uh, the dual meets that uh, and the tournaments that were coming up in wrestling, and so what that meant is uh, really uh, just being completely ignorant about diet back in the 70s and nutrition outside of food groups. Uh, basically, the way that you lost that weight was to starve, and and during those years, for the months that we were wrestling, there, I was not the only one. There were a lot of us that that we would start literally go without food for four days out of the week, only eating on three days. Uh, we had a dual meet on Wednesday, so I would eat on Wednesday after weigh-ins that morning. Saturday, we would have a dual meet, so I would eat on Saturday, I would eat on Sunday, but Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, no eating. And I wasn't the only one. And what was kind of amazing about all of that is, you know, uh, the, the, the first, especially in the first couple of weeks, it was just so incredibly tough after you had been bulking up at every meal, you know, you know the, the 10 normal meals during the day for a high school uh, football player, uh, then you had to go without. And so it was, it was not just physical, it was also emotional and mental. 
And so those first couple of days where you're starting to, to, to get into that wrestling mindset and you're going without food, and none of this was smart, and this is not the way that they, they, they teach wrestlers to do it this day, but in our day, again, didn't know what we were doing. We were just trying to make weight. Uh, a lot of things that we did in that day are even illegal uh, today to do at the high school level. So, you know, during those first couple of days, you go without food, and it seemed like food would just pop out of thin air. At lunchtime, you walk into the lunchroom, and usually, you know, the, 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 the cafeteria fare was not all that great. You look at it, and you go, man, I, you know, I don't know, cafeteria food, you know. But during those early days of the wrestling season, you walk in, and it was like a buffet in there. And you're looking at this stuff, and you go, I cannot even be with my friends in this cafeteria. So at lunchtime, I would uh, go up to the library, and because we were up on the East Coast at that time, it was very cold during the wrestling months, I would sit on a heating register up in the, uh, the, uh, the library, and I just, during the lunch hour, I would just read every book that was on the bookshelf next to me during wrestling season. It's the same thing that happened at night. Uh, it just it seemed like, you know, you'd get home, and mother had made I mean, the most delicious meal she had ever made in her life. I mean, you walk in that door, and you're just completely worn out. You've just been working, 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 sweating, 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 sweating. And you walk into that house, and you go, really, Mom, fried chicken, homemade fried chicken, mashed potatoes? Really? You're going to do that? And so, again, to deal with that temptation towards food, you'd put on, uh, you'd put on a T-shirt, uh, you'd put on a sweatshirt, sweatpants, you'd put on a rubber uh, uh, pants, rubber uh, you were putting on basically a rubber suit, a rubber top. Then you put more sweatpants on, put on your tennis shoes, and you'd go run while everybody else was eating. It was, it, it was uh, I think during those years, it, it was amazing. I think during those years, I used up all of my willpower when it came to food. By the time I was 18, I, I had no willpower whatsoever, you know. When it comes to temptation, uh, C.S. Lewis, as you know, ha has written not only some of the greatest things and insights on Christian living, but on temptation out of uh, mere Christianity. I think he writes something incredibly profound. He writes, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would be like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Sort of a unique uh, take there. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. I, I think that there is tremendous truth in what he's saying. Is that temptations are 
are always going to be about the, the strength of the trust that we have in God. Every temptation, inside of every temptation, underneath every temptation, is the question, do you really trust God? And one of the things that I think that we've become a little bit naive about, or if not naive, we don't think about it maybe nearly as much as we should, is that Satan is not only against our faith and our flourishing in the kingdom of God, but Satan is an incredibly intelligent being. In fact, uh, Satan is a lot like Amazon. Have you ever noticed that when you go onto Amazon and you make a lot of purchases, I, I make a lot of purchases on Amazon, uh, you know, I just think that I need to get a book right now, and so I'll go to Amazon and I'll buy the Prime book and it'll be here in the next day or two. And, and what happens is that as I'm paying for all of that, there's this, uh, this window that pops up kind of underneath as you scroll up that says, hey, you know, by the way, all of the people that read the book and like the one that you're reading, they recommend these books as well. And there's like 10 books down there. Or it might be one time I bought a, I bought a pocket knife on Amazon. And as I'm paying for it, you know, it, it pops up. And, and at the bottom it says, you know, and people who, by the way, buy this pocket knife also like these pocket knives. And the temptation is, you know what, that's a $17 pocket knife. That's a really cheap pocket knife. I could use a cheap pocket knife. And so you give in to the temptation. I mean, it's, it's like iTunes. iTunes genius. When you purchase something off of iTunes, what pops up? People who like what it is that you're, you're buying also recommend this. And there's like 30 different songs down there that you can choose from. It's always the temptation to do something else. Which is where we find ourselves in, in Matthew chapter 4. And this story actually begins, that Wayne read to us, it actually begins in chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, and he comes to John the Baptist to be baptized by him. And you know the story, John tries to prevent him. He says, I should be baptized by you. But Jesus says, permit it at this time, for it, in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That, that Jesus is not being baptized by John for the forgiveness of sin, which is what John's baptism is about, but it's also about lining his life up with the will of God. It is about lining his, his, his life up with the righteousness of God. And Jesus is, be, is baptized. He comes up out of the water. The heavens open up. They see the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And there is this voice that comes out of the heavens that says, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. God is saying to John and to anyone else that can hear it that, that this person that just came up out of the water that you see the Spirit coming down on, I love him. I'm pleased with him. And then verse 1 of chapter 4 begins with these words. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. So who is it that is going to lead out into the desert, out into the wilderness, the Son of God? Who leads Him? The Holy Spirit. Why does the Holy Spirit lead Jesus right after this incredible moment? Why does He lead Him into the wilderness? The text continues. The Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he's in the wilderness for 40 days, and he's there for 40 nights, and he becomes hungry. And Satan appears to him and, and says to him, 
If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered in verse 4, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. When you go to Israel, uh, there is, according to church tradition, there is a wadi that goes to the, to the west of the Jordan River, just a few miles north of where the Jordan River enters into the north side of the Dead Sea. It's called the Wadi Kelt. And there is a, there's a monastery that has built, been built uh, along those, those, those cliffs. But it's, it's, it's just a really stark area. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a place where as you walk, even as a tourist, you're always thinking about your step. You're thinking that, you know, if I take a false step here or a false step there, I'm sliding down into the bottom of that ravine, and that's going to be a bad deal. And, and you walk, and, and one of the things that they ask you to do when you travel to Israel and you're going through the Wadi Kelt, and they tell you, they say, you know, there, there's absolutely no way for sure that we can know, but just according to the text, this is, is not, it's a fast without food, but it doesn't say it's a miraculous fast without water. Uh, one of the places that during this time of the year that he would have been able to find water would have been out in the, in the wilderness around this, this, Kelt, this Wadi Kelt, and this is perhaps in the area also where John was baptizing. So as you're walking through it, you're being reminded that as, 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 as Jesus was walking in this area, that there was a manifestation of, of, of a malevolent, the most malevolent being in the entire universe appeared to Jesus at the end of, of a month and ten days of going without food. And as you come down to the end of that Celt, as you come back out into civilization, as you're, as you're getting close to communities where people live, there are just thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of, of rocks that look like bread right out there, and, and you think to yourself, you know, this is possibly where this happened. And in this story, Satan appears to Jesus at a point when he's weak. He's been going 40 days without food. And Satan says to him, if you're really the Son of God, he's placing doubt in the mind of, of the Christ. He says, if, if you're really the, the Son of God, then really all you have to do is to command these stones to become bread and to eat. Now, you know, on the surface of the thing, this thing, there's really nothing evil at all in what, in what Satan is asking Jesus to do. It's not a sin to eat. Eating is good. In fact, eating is what preserves life. Eating is what makes you strong. It, it builds you up. It's a thing that sustains life and keeps you moving forward. Forward. What is evil is what is underneath. What Satan is asking Jesus to do is to satisfy a desire. A very basic desire. And again, there's nothing wrong with eating. I mean, when we get hungry, we eat. But here's the thing. God desires Jesus to be hungry. God desires Jesus to be hungry. The desire is to go out into this place and to go without food. And Satan says, why don't you just make some food and eat? There's nothing wrong with that desire. But what is, what is the question that is underneath every temptation? Will you trust God? 
And so what happens is that Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. When you go back to Deuteronomy 8, what you have is Moses reminding the people of what it was like when they left Egypt and were heading to the promised land. They, they come to a place where, where the sea has cut them off, and here's Pharaoh's army coming down on them, and they go, if God just led us to this place where he's going he's to allow us to die, it'd be better than to die to live as slaves in Egypt. And God splits the water and allows them to cross, and then he destroys Pharaoh's army. They get out into the desert, and what happens? We're hungry, we're hungry, we're hungry. He provides the manna, and yet they kind of mess up with the manna. And a couple of times, they're thirsty for water, and God provides the water, but they mess up on the water, and it just seems like every time they get, you know, God brings them to a place, they're putting God to the test and saying, God, is, is God going to come through? Is God going to be able to, to, to satisfy this desire, whatever it might be? In some cases, it's hunger. In some cases, it's thirst. In some cases, it's fear for safety and for life itself. But always, God comes through. And when Moses begins to remind them of what was happening back in Exodus, he says to them in Deuteronomy chapter 8, do you not remember all of the ways that God said and promised that he was going to do all of these things for you? Do you not know that, God, that you're not going to live be sustained and flourish on bread alone but by trusting God's word and so in this first temptation it is the temptation or it's actually the contest are we going to trust God or are we going to satisfy the desires that we have in this life you know, you think about the strength of some of those desires that, that we struggle with in this life. The struggle to have a mate, the struggle to have children, the struggle to have an education, the struggle, all of these struggles that we have. And what is the temptation? Is God's Word going to be enough to sustain us in this life? Or are we going to take matters into our own hands? And for Jesus, He says, God led me by His Spirit, God led me into this wilderness, and I trust God to bring me out. Well, Satan says, oh, you're going to throw Scripture into this thing. The second temptation, verse 5, the devil takes Jesus to the holy city, has him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, the word that is used here is probably the general word for the temple mound itself and not the literal word for the the temple place itself and when you go to israel one of the things that you see is that the the deepest part of 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 any ravine around the temple was was that that southwesterly corner of the temple that overlooked the tyropian uh, valley or the cheesemaker valley and it, Probably this is the place where Satan took Jesus because it was not only the, the highest place where he would jump off, but it was also the place where it would be viewed by the most people. There was a, a couple of uh, little pathways or alleyways or roads that went along that valley, and that's where all the vendors and the markets were. And that would be where the, the most people in Jerusalem at that time would be able to see Jesus jump off of this high place of the Temple Mount and, and land, but not land because Satan is going to use Scripture himself. You want to use Scripture? I can use Scripture too. So he quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. He says, He, meaning God, will command His angels concerning you. Drop down to verse 12 of Psalm 91. He says, On their hand they will bear you up, 
so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. What the temptation there is, is not so much about the desire, but where our worth comes from. Where it is that, 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 that our worth, he's saying, Jesus, if you really want some worth, you know, you'll get it in the eyes of the people when they see you jump off of this high place on the temple, and all of these angels all of a sudden that are invisible become visible, and they catch you, and they bear you up, and you're not even going to bruise your toes. You, know, you think about it. You know, we struggle with the same kind of a temptation. You know, that our worth is going to come from something other than God. That it's going to be something other than God that is going to define us and give our life meaning and give our life definition. And again, it, it boils down to, do we trust God? And is God precious enough to us in that trust that He begins to define our identity in this world, a world that's full of idols? And Jesus says, verse 7, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, he's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. Third temptation rolls around. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. This one, I think, is the, the most uh, abrupt when it comes to Satan confronting Jesus. Because he's really cutting to the chase here. And he says, you know what, this is really about your exaltation. And this is, this is really about you coming into your own and getting what it is that, that you deserve because of your identity. If, you're, you know, if you will fall down and worship me, I am going to give you, I'll give you the world. And really, the, the, the temptation here is, I think, the one that is also most challenging and confrontational to Jesus as it pertains to the cross. The temptation for Jesus here is, is to avoid the will of God or the plan of God for his life. To give up too early on God's will or God's plan or what it is that God has called you to do too early because you've been given an exit door, an easy way out. You see, one of the, in fact, this is in some ways inherent in all of these temptations. The, the temptation is to glorify yourself, to exalt yourself, to give yourself worth, to identify yourself outside of the will of God, outside of what it is that God calls you to. But this one is the most blatant. And he says, I'll make you a king, and you don't have to go to the cross. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. And again, Jesus going to Deuteronomy chapter 6, says, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You know, the thing that, that is a, a, a temptation here for Jesus is to avoid the cross. But what is it that... That, that Paul in Philippians chapter 2 tells us about the exaltation of Jesus. It happened at the end, right? 
that at the very beginning of the mission that 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 the Hebrew writer talks about you know there's this there is this 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 call who will go and 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 God's son says here am I send me and he's prepared a body for me and Paul in Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus did not count the equality with God was something he was just going to cling hold on and embrace and never let go of but he was going to empty himself and take on the form of a man, and not just a man, but a servant, not just a servant who's obedient, but one who's obedient on the, you know, to death on a cross. Not just any death, but death on a cross. And you know as well as I do in Luke chapter 22 that John Skipworth was reading for us this morning in the communion devotional that this is, this is a period of time when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours away from being crucified, just minutes away from being betrayed into the hands of his enemies and, and the torture and the suffering and the beatings and the spitting and the mocking and the belittling is all going to begin in minutes. And what is it that Jesus is asking God to do? And it is such an intensely emotional moment for him that there's blood that's even being mingled in his sweat drops as he's praying, God, and what is it that he prays? Take this cup away. Don't let me drink from this cup. If there's any way, if there's any way, Father, I don't want to drink from this cup. But I trust you. And I trust your will for my life. Your will be done not mine. Your will be done. And as Paul thinks and reflects back on Luke chapter 22, he goes, you know, not only did he empty himself and humble himself, which means that he just, he just trusted God completely. And the horrifying death that he died on the cross that was for us, it was after that that he was exalted. King of the universe. King over everything. And rightfully recognized by every creature whose knee will bow before him. What Jesus is, is, is doing right after the, the public, this public declaration that he has aligned his life with the will of God was to fight for the will of God to be done in his life. Sometimes, sometimes the temptations come at us and, and we find ourselves in the middle of it. Sometimes uh, they, they come at us and we recognize them for what they are at the very beginning and we find ourselves fighting at the beginning. We find ourselves fighting in the middle of it. But what happens with the crisis that he fights for the will of God to be done in his life in a way that we've been called to do in our own life. What, one of the things that, that, that's really interesting about all of this too is that Jesus is not, that, that Jesus is not trying to fight the, the temptations merely on his, his strength alone. But what is he doing? He's allowing God's word, God's powerful word, 
I mean, when you read this passage in Matthew chapter 4, what Jesus is doing, he's gone to a book like Deuteronomy that sometimes, yeah, there are a couple of interesting stories in it, but basically the book of Deuteronomy is three big sermons that Moses gives the people right before they enter the promised land and we get into the book of Joshua, and that's where the action really is. But what is Moses doing? He's reminding the people and reminding the people and reminding the people not only of the powerful presence of God, but the power of God's Word. That is a power that we sometimes just pay lip, we play, uh, we pay lip, service to and don't in reality embrace but the word of god is a powerful 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 word that shapes our lives and not just gives us a direction and gives us a meaning and gives us a significance but it also gives us parameters and it gives us a a path and it gives us a light and it's a transforming word in the way that we think about life and the way that we think about the kingdom of god and the way that we think about satan and temptation and our future it is, it is a power that comes into our life in such a way that it shapes us to be disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, which means that we're living lives that look like His life. And Jesus uses God's Word to fight the temptations that come to Him in this life. The temptations that are tricky, the temptations that, that are unexpected, the temptations that are camouflaged, the temptations that are veiled. But all of the temptations were about trusting God. And whether or not you trust God and His Word and His promises to be greater than the desires of your own body or to be greater than the identity and the worth that you try to give yourself or to short-circuit God's plan when God's plan is not working in the direction that you want it to go wish I could tell you the the names of the the folks that over the years have just been so disenchanted and become so disillusioned with with God and God's kingdom and God's will because they expected to be someplace or to be somebody different than who they were in that moment. And it was that disillusionment or that disappointment with God that overcame the trusting of God and God's way and God's will and God's presence and God's word in such a way that it began to shatter their faith. But here's the Christ. But here's the Christ standing there. Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 6, using God's word to shape not only his life, but to shape his vision and to be that power in which he fights the temptations that are going to chip away at his life as a as, as the Messiah. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. Maybe you've been struggling with some things yourself. You know, the, the, the temptation, the temptation itself, uh, we, just because a temptation comes to us in this life, that temptation itself is, 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 is not the sin. The call, though, is to fight what the temptation wants us to become something less than what God desires for us, something less than what God calls us to be, and something less than what God calls us to do. And if you're struggling with some of these areas in your life, our shepherds are going to be down here at the front, and perhaps uh, as a church we could pray for you or spend time with you to strengthen you in your resolve and in your power and in your, 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 the, the mechanics of living as a disciple of Jesus. If that describes you, we want you to stand as we praise God together.